Hello, beloved sibling. You know, Peggy, I, I, I predict that this is going to be a really great, I'm not, this is my, uh, um, what was it, Johnny Carson character? Remember that? Oh, anyway, I, I predict, I predict that this is going to be a really fascinating show. <laughs> you predict? Really? You predict? I predict, yes, I can How predict. you predict, Aaron? Well, let me just say, you probably possibly, you may not understand the deep neuroscience investment here, but it's actually been known for a long time that one of the primary fundamental functions of the human brain is to predict the future. Are you shocked? Why is that? Um, why is that? Because, well, obviously, there is an evolutionary advantage to the ape who can... What, hey, hey Aaron, Aaron, what if I want to live in the present? What's wrong with that? Why can't I live in the present? Well, I actually do know the answer to that question, but because you're Peggy Mason, you should explain it to us. No, 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 no. Let's hear you explain why I can't live. The reason you can't live in the present is because you can't see the present, all of the present. All you get to do is see what happened a few milliseconds ago. That's it. You don't get to, when I'm looking at you, I'm despite, even if there's not a delay in the video signal, <laughs> There's no delay in the video signal. In when I'm, if I'm standing right in your home, I'm only seeing the you several milliseconds ago, just as we all know. Even more tens of milliseconds to hundreds of milliseconds ago. But just as we all know that yeah. when we look at the sun, we're seeing light that left the sun 11 minutes ago. And that's right. old news. So the but, astronomers figured this out maybe a little bit before the uh, neuroscientists, but we've caught up. And now we know that the brain is is a predictive machine. That's what it's built to do. And it has to, because it really has to figure out by the time I go to do something, the world has changed from what it was when I started my movement. Right. And, you know, and again, so I, this, but what we, we've been talking about here is this new research about how brains, how effective brains are, how, in my view, astonishingly effective brains are in predicting the next word that you will say, which is a phenomenon that I have up until recently really only associated with people who had been married for a long time. You know, this joke about, what, what? I'm just saying this joke about finishing each other's sentences, this is an old joke, an old phenomenon. Like, like, for example, uh, Luani Anderson, uh, when, I, when I see her at the, the Neuroscience in 2018, I'm sure that, that I will be able to predict what she's going to... No, I won't be able to predict what she'll say because she'll say it in Spanish. <laughs> oh, no, she can talk to you in English. Well, that's true, too. She will, she will, deign, she will deign to talk to us in English. Yes. But, but it is, but again, I've always thought of this as just a thing that happened with familiarity. But the research tells us that it's not something that we're not merely able to predict those with whom we are familiar, the, the, the patterns, speech patterns of people with whom we are intimately familiar. Yeah, I, I remember that we've um, we've talked a lot about uh, um, uh, we've talked a lot about making shortcuts to to yes. do things faster. So yes. one of the faster ways that you can do things is to decide that what you're going to do is you're going to expect what you're going to see because it's a situation that you've seen a million times before. You're not really going to pay attention. You're not going to process the incoming sensory input. You're just going to say, oh, I expect this. And unless something, you know, some foghorn tells you, 
no, it's not the same. It's different. Then you're going to say, oh, well, every other time I've been in this situation, I've heard, open your notebooks, please. And so now I open my notebook. Well, you had talked about this a little in some detail in our, our video about baseball. Right. And what, how, how batters have a quarter of a second between the time the ball leaves the pitcher's hand and arrives in the catcher's mitt. And during that time, I'm bad at the mind, I, my mind was blown then at the sophistication of the calculation that just normal brains have. Well, I, I, I just want to get it out of the uh, baseball player's uh, domain and, and, and remark that we all have this ability. And one of this is an old result that I, I always have loved this result. Um, it was a, it was an Australian neuroscientist. I think her name is Pam Davis. Uh, but what she found, and uh, and and I think this has been um, confirmed or, or, or repeated, uh, is that the breath that you take in before you speak a sentence is approximately the right length so that you can say all the words that you have to say, which means that before you take that breath, you already know what you're going to say. You think you're just talking, blah, 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 blah. But already your brain knows about how long the sentence is that you're going to say. And that's really amazing. Well, no, that's but there's also, isn't, there's also a, um, let me grab myself right here. There's also a, um, one of the a really interesting, this also works with your, with the motor cortex. There's a, that very famous experiment where they would tell people, press the button when you on the, on the fMRI, and they say, press the button whenever you feel like it. And there's activation in the motor cortex before you are consciously aware that now you're going to start pressing yeah, the button. Yeah, that's a really famous uh, experiment by Benjamin Libet. And um, yeah, it's a really, really exp famous experiment. Uh, somehow, I, I like the... I like the example of the I'm taking a, a long breath to say something really long yes, versus yes, I'm taking yes. a short breath to say something short because first of all we all do it and second of all taking a breath before you talk that's you know that's essentially ancient history in neurological terms it's seconds it's time enough for for a uh, for you to go around and around the nervous system about 500 times, uh, you know, across a thousand synapses. So it's really an amazing and effect, amazing effect. And kids do it, and you do it, and I do it. Everyone does it. And you know, we got all this whole thing, this wonderful thing that we call the brain for free. But so this in this recent study, uh, which was published in Nature, uh, and based on research that was done in the Basque region of Spain. <laughs> but that doesn't make any Basque. I wonder if the Luanis. Well, they were. They did it in Spanish. I don't know what uh, the that, politics of that is, but they did it in actual Spanish. Well, that, that's a good point. Uh, of course, I. I uh, but thanks to good old Google Translate, <laughs> we were able to read it. I was able to read. No, it. no, no. They they presented in English, but um, yeah. So it's oh, a really oh, interesting expectation that they. Uh, found that we have that I didn't know that I expected. Well, so tell, tell us what it is that, 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 that the new, the brand new news here about what our brain so, It turns out there are different classes of consonants. 
there are fricative, fricative sounds. And fricative sounds means that the air is going through a small opening. And then there are what are called plosive. Do not put an EX there, just plosive, <laughs> okay? plosive sounds. And plosive sounds are sounds that go, stop. So, okay, so they're stopping. And um, for example, the voiceless plosive sounds are puh, tuh, kuh. And then the fricative sounds are fa, tha, sa. You can see, you, that's sort of more intuitive to me. Fa, you can see that it's going through a little hole, tha, sa. Right, right. So what turns out is that they showed people uh, pictures. So a picture of a sandal, and then they say the word sandal. And there were a picture of a cannon, and then they say the word cannon. These were pictures of people who were hooked up to a very a weird machine that I'd never heard, an MEG machine. It's called an, a magnetoencephalography machine. And, and so it's, it's akin to an EEG, an electroencephalography, but it uses a magnetic field instead of electrical field. Um, it has slightly different properties, but the basic idea is the same. You're, you're basically getting a measure of automated activity in the brain. All right, so people are they're sitting on this machine, and we're getting a live readout of some of the things that are the activity in their brains, and they're being shown a picture, and then having a word associated with it. And what they found was that the people had a different pattern of activation if they were expecting expecting a fricative a a word that began with a fricative consonant versus a word that began with a plosive consonant. So I, what's, what's sort of surprising to me is, well, you know, I really was unaware that I was categorizing sounds into fricatives and plosives <laughs> until I looked it up on Wikipedia. I didn't know what they were until, you know, uh, until I looked it up. So, uh, so that's, you know, that's sort of interesting, but I guess to me, it makes some sense because I'm much more likely to mistake a fa for a fa or a fa for a sa than a fa for a say um ha. yeah yeah now wait, so the one wants to know about uh whether or not this is a phenomenon that is um more likely i guess to occur in twins but would i think what well, this is not this is not actually the ability to continue in other sentences right. i mean yeah of course th that is something that that we're good at is to continue the sentences of of people or the thoughts of people that we know well. But this is, you're just, you're expecting something. You walk into the classroom and you're expecting the person to say, good morning, not to say, uh, you know, file your taxes. I don't know. Yeah. So you're, you're just expecting the thing that is right for that context. And um, then and, and the, 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 Consonants and the consonants expect. involved are expected. That's what they are telling yes. us now. It and it's expected in the superior temporal gyrus, which is, you know, where the primary auditory cortex is. Um, well, yeah, that's another thing. This really was. This is an auditory phenomenon. That there's activity in the auditory cortex, which is another. I mean, I guess it's not shocking, uh, but just that the, the, that the auditory cortex. Anticip is where we find the anticipation. Where we right. find so another, another way to think about this is to say that 
we don't really know. One of the things we don't know at all is, well, not, not at all, but we know, we don't know it well, how the auditory cortex is organized. So for example, we know how the, the visual cortex is organized. We have a really good idea of how the visual org, uh, cortex, we have a decent idea of how the somatosensory cortex is organized. And we have a controversial, but uh, some good guesses as to how the motor cortex is organized. Um, but for the auditory cortex, it's been much, much different, much more difficult to figure out what's the, what are the organizational principles. There is a tonotopy, but what else is going on? And so this is suggesting to me that, you know, there's this fricative versus plosive, blah, 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 blah. I guess I, I don't quite get this because you, my beloved friend, have taken apart more brains than probably anyone I know, have ever known. Well, taking taking apart a brain does not tell you how a cortex is organized physiologically. You can see why this is a bit surprising because you can take it apart, slice, you take it apart slice by slice and every which way. But well, could, yeah, but that doesn't tell you how it's organized. Apparently not. <laughs> you would not. You would not be, you could not take apart the visual cortex and say, oh, I know that there are orientation selective cells or there are re blobs where there, there are cells that like certain colors that respond to different colors. So, um, no, you cannot tell function from just anatomy. Don't get me wrong. I love anatomy. <laughs> and and it's great, but it does not in and of itself you know, you have to use these various tools together. So um, you can't take it apart and know how it's organized. So we don't really understand too well how the auditory cortex is, is organized. And so, so this, again, what was unique about this work was that using the, the help of uh, this magneto... Encephalography. MEG, magneto. Yeah. We were able to see where the consonants, what parts of the areas of the auditory cortex we're responding to consonants as yet unspoken. Yeah, and consonants in two different classes differently. So they would respond the same to fathasa and different from how they would respond to pataka. Oh, by the way, so of course, uh, Lohani remembers this because she also was a student of understanding the brain, the neurobiology of everyday life. By the way, I do want to say that we do have the <coughs> Chicago Brain Buddies podcast and this particular little chat will be on there in a couple of hours after we finish this. So if you'd like to catch up on uh, the, the chat without actually having to look at us <laughs> while you're in the car, which we recommend. If you'd like to do it while you're in the car, don't do it. Watch on YouTube. But uh, You can out. wait wait till my next haircut to look at us. That's right. That's right. And yeah. your next haircut. I mean, man, what's going on there, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I let it go and it started to look too much like yours. And I was okay. have trouble distinguishing between you and me. Yeah. It's better just to shave it. Okay. <laughs> so now, but in addition to being really fascinating, this business about being able to, the brain being able to uh, tell consonants before they are spoken has some practical, theoretically practical therapeutic value? Uh, I, I, I don't know about that. What do well, you I, in one of the articles I read about it, it yeah. said that it could be useful for people with uh, autism uh -huh. who have difficulty assessing their environment such that they can respond properly to it. 
And also that it might be useful for folks who have suffered dyslexia. If the better we understand it, uh, the better we understand the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the way the auditory cortex processes information, the more effective we might be in treating some of those disorders. Yeah. Francesca so is, is asking whether it's just the auditory cortex that is uh, that has this predictive ability or this foreseeing ability. And no, the answer is, uh, so remember the experiment. I think we've talked about this a few times. Let's say I take a chunk of cortex, okay? I take it out of an animal, of a, of a mouse, let's say, and I put it into a dish and I record from lots of different cells. I can visually record from them, so I can record from hundreds of cells. And they, they make a, even in the dish, they just make a, a typical pattern, okay? So they have a little pattern. They, they dance in a certain way. You know, after Joe dances, Nancy dances, and then Tom does, and and so mm-hmm. on. So they're yeah. in a little chain. It's a circuit. You mean and, like you slice of brain tissue? What's that? You mean if you took like a slice of brain yeah, tissue? Yeah, it's a slice of brain tissue, a slice of cortex, okay. and it's going to have a certain circuit that's stereotyped, and it does, the, it does its little thing. Well, there's a finding that uh, comes from people such as Rafa Yusta and and one of my colleagues here, Jason McLean, that shows, and, and this has been repeated by, by many others, that the activity that you see just spontaneously there in the cortex is the same activity if you, that you would get if you stimulated the sensory input from thalamus. So in other words, the brain is sitting there doing its ex- expected thing even without any input. Remember we say what you see, you know, we are not cameras and we are not tape recorders. Right. Well, the fact of the matter is, you know, the cortex is just sitting there with its own little private Idaho idea about what is going to happen next. And it does that regardless of whether it has any input. Well, you know, that is a really another really interesting thing about this, 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 this data, which is that, I, not that I think about it a whole lot, but... I, I sort of had a sense always, or sort of, it feels intuitively right that your your auditory cortex, your hearing system, is sitting and waiting for something to happen. But that's not apparently the way it works. Well, it it's sitting and expecting what's going to happen given the context. And I think we've all had the I we've all had the um, experience where you hear something. You have no idea what the person just said. You replay it a few times in your head, and and a demonstrable number of seconds later, oh, that's what they said. Wow. Right? You can you yeah. can figure it out. And so what that is 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 it highlights how difficult it is to decode auditory sounds. It's really right. really hard. To, um, to to tell even where one word begins and one word ends, and you can you can figure this out if you listen to a foreign language. If you listen to people talking in a language you don't understand, you have no idea where the space the the silences between the words are, and that's because there are no silences. But there are also no silences in English. But we hear the silences. We hear gaps. And there are no gaps. 
So we're just making stuff up all the time. We're just predicting. I, 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 I don't. There's no. There's no gaps in English. What are you talking about? No. If you. If I take my phone. Okay, hold on. <laughs> what you got? Gonna, we're going to do a little experiment. Take, here's a voice me memo. Okay. Okay. Yes. Can you see the screen? Yes. Okay. See, see. So I'm going to put it on. All right, I see. Here I am talking. Here I am talking. That's how slow I have to go to get spaces between the words. Oh, wow. That's a good demonstration. That's a good Can demonstration. Can we do it again? The brain. Where, where, where is it? Can you see it? Uh, let me get it bigger for you. Uh, no, I can't see it. I can't see it. Oh, oh, because it... <laughs> yeah, <got> it. <laughs> the brain is so cool. Did I just say one word or did I say a bunch of words? You obviously said a bunch of words, but it looked like it didn't look like there was any spaces in it at all. Just like what I'm talking about right now, it doesn't look like there are any spaces in what I'm talking. But it's okay, obvious so to you and me and all the folks listening that I am taking spaces. The so. brain is so cool. That's right. what you have to do. Well, let's just say the brain is so cool is also the name of your <laughs> wonderful blog, thebrainissocool.com. But okay, wait, but just explain this to me. I don't get it. I, how in the world, why does it sound like we're taking spaces? But because, it doesn't you, because we, I have told you, Aaron, <laughs> we are yeah. not cameras and we are not tape recorders. We are interpreters. We are such what? fantastic it, interpreters. It doesn't sound like that. It doesn't sound like that. It, it, it goes contrary to my to everything I know. I mean, it, it, I hate that. <laughs> love it. Love it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so let's say, let's see what Francesca, as far as you know, there are studies about these patterns our brains make, like similarity between different species, bigger patterns are made similarly or fractal. Um, yeah, I really, I don't know how it varies between species. This is pretty, this is probably true in, in all the various different species. Um, and John, hi, John. So hi, John. with someone whose first language is in English, would it be more helpful to put in spaces that aren't usually between, as opposed to just speak those words slowly? I mean, okay. I think that is the same thing, that speaking the Oh, I see. Speaking the words slowly, slowly without, with, I don't know. I think when you speak the words slowly, naturally the spaces become more evident. Hi, Allie. <laughs> but that is, that is certainly what I think I tend to do with uh, someone who I think doesn't, is not familiar with English, as familiar as I am. And I certainly know that when I'm listening to a language, I will ask people, please speak more slowly because right. I am not... Um, able to do it. I'm not, I'm not able to hear it. When I'm, in, when I'm in Paris, I can understand somebody if they speak slowly. If they speak rapidly, I am so sunk. Right, right. And the tendency is the more familiar you are with a language, the more rapidly you speak because there's no reason to take that extra time because you're speaking to a native, a fellow native speaker. 
Well, yeah, and, and I think some some languages tend to be slower and some languages tend to be faster. Uh, so you know, you it's it's a difficult thing if you're um if you're trying to learn a language that is fast. Well, that, that's, but as Lenny said, that what we are doing when we are speaking more slowly to those for whom English is not first language is putting a separation between oh, going slowly is not the same as separating words. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that probably slowly is more important, but I also think that the slower you go, the the more evident it is where the separations are. But I, right. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yes. I don't know. We need to get experiment. Yeah, we need to get Noam Chomsky in here to do this. So, it's, so, but this, this, the, the, the real headline here is about the consonants, not so much about the the, the vowels. Well, I, um, the the consonants, if I recall correctly, the consonants are the ones are higher frequency. So they're the ones that people miss. So as you start to lose hearing, you're going to lose hearing in the higher frequencies. You're going to start to lose um, the. You're going to start to the consonant understanding is going to start to drop out. Well, you know, and Michael makes a really good point that those of us who are native English speakers, there are versions of English, yeah. not only uh, uh, British English, but even Southern English, right. As a matter of fact, just the, the side personal yeah. side, just recently Sharon was pointing out the fact that uh, I would say due to my southern heritage, my mom from Mississippi, my great, my father from Kentucky, I I sometimes take one syllable words and make them into two syllable words. Yeah, like now grits is a two syllable word. Grits, right? Where people in the north say grits, but no, say, I actually you do it. You do the same thing in Maryland. Oh really? And and my brother, my brother has much more of a Maryland accent than I do. But in certain moods, I will get very Marylandy, and it'll go <laughs> almost a Southern drawl. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so, and so the, the this again, this, this may have some treatment, of maybe have some clinical applications according to one of the articles that I read about it. But does it? Affect it all the way you, as a neurobiologist, inform your understanding of the neurobiology of it in any way to know that the brain, that the auditory cortex can has these predictive powers that you didn't know about. I mean, I, I, to me, the most interesting thing is this idea that you separately predict fricatives from plosives, which I just didn't know. I didn't know because it means I'm categorizing words on an axis that I didn't even know existed. Okay. And you know, I know that there are a million examples of that. I know that we make judgments all the time that are unconscious judgments using very sharp unconscious boundaries and I'm not conscious of them. They're unconscious. So I know that, but this is another example of it. And it's a, it's a really um, sort of, to me, it's a really ex- um, surprising example, but so Aaron, you just to... dropped out for some reason. Oh, I think I'm still here. Uh, I, I used to... Francesca says, "I have personal experience about speaking another language. When you ask to go slow, 
many times people enlong their vowels instead of separating them. They tend to speak loudly. For sure they speak loudly. You know, um, what is the book? It, there's a book about this. Um, uh, one moment. Uh, miss, I think the book is Missing Connections. Um, and it's, it talks about the experience of losing your hearing and everyone talking to you much louder, which is completely not helpful. Um, <laughs> where in fact, what you want is you just missed a couple consonants and that's what sunk you. Like our page, uh, Chicago Brain Buddies on Facebook, or check out uh, Chicago Brain Buddies on. Yep. You can get on YouTube. I'm not finding it. And you can listen I to. I think it's missing connections. Anyway, our fearless leader has left us. Our perception and expectation involved in this experiment. I think. Well, I think that yeah, I think that the whole thing is about expectation dominating perception. The whole idea here, Luani, is that expectation is what dominates uh, perception rather than actually information. Hi, Aaron. Hi. <laughs> um, rather than information from, from whatever it is that, uh, rather than stimulus information, shall we say. So well, expectation is the primary thing that we that we use to make perception. Of course, the expectation is built on previous perceptions, which at some point got grounded in external reality. Um, but now let me just say though, that, again, there is, for example, as we've talked about, about baseball, there we, have, we know that there's a dorsal visual stream, and yep. we know that there's a temporal visual stream. So we know that there's neurobiology involved in our ability to predict the path of a moving object. Right. So I want to say that there must be neurobiology involved in our ability to predict sounds, indicatives versus pulsives. Is that true? That there well, must of be. Of course, absolutely. There's huge neurobiology in, in predicting sounds. There's, pre there's neurobiology in predicting every single stimulus, every single uh, sensory system involves prediction. Probably more than it does in the adult, probably prediction outweighs stimulus. Ah, I got it right, right. Because we, we've learned more about how the world works, and so we are more sanguine in our predictions about, we're more confident in our predictions about the world because our database of past experiences is so much, because people like me are so old. Right. I found the book. Okay. I want, I want everyone. This is a really good book. Her name is Stenross, S-T-E-N-R-O-S-S. -S. I think her first name is Barbara. And the title of the book is Missed Connections, Hard of Hearing in a Hearing World. And I, and I think I've said that before, but, um, but when I read that, I was really nice to my mom for, for a little while. Um, and then it kind of passed and I was, well, look, okay, so with her again. We are we're near the end of our little half hour. So, but as you think about the happy ending, the optimistic takeaway from all this, 
I want to thank all the gang for watching and thank you for our new folks, Francesca, thank you, Mike, our beloved uh, Luani, and everybody we hope and thank all the folks who are watching the replay, thank for the folks who are watching on YouTube. Uh, but, uh, and we can also- I, have, can, oh. can I uh, just make one comment at the end? I'm trying to give shameless, you- I'm shamelessly um, promoting, not me, but my, my mother, she is in the Washington Post today. If you go Washington Post and Jane Mason, you will see a wonderful story about my mother. And I'm just so proud of her. She's so happy. It's a beautiful story for something that um, she's never gotten enough attention for. And I'm, I'm just so, I couldn't be more pleased for her. So well, go you, read about my mom. Washington well, you, Post, Jane Mason. But if we, if they go to, my guess is that if we ask really nicely, if folks go to the Excitable, uh, the uh, Chicago Brain Buddies Facebook page, you would post a link to that story. Yes, I will post a link to that story. Um, yes, I will. And to the book. And to the book, yeah. Yes. Well, so, so again, what is your most optimistic takeaway from this brand new research that you, even you, didn't know about? Uh, we're great predictors. <laughs> and we and we detect it when we're being fooled. Ah, yeah. We're good at detecting being fooled. But of course, we are never fooled by the sagacious words of one Peggy Mason, the Peggy Mason, the great one, professor of neurobiology, a creator of uh, 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 understanding the brain, the neurobiology of everyday life, the wonderful Coursera MOOC that many of us have taken, and the curator and chief and head writer for thebrainissocool.com. And I predict that next week we will be back here next Thursday. Yeah, we're gonna talk about um, a really cool new finding from Sam Wang about uh, his, what I think is very interesting, very controversial idea of what's the crux of the problem in autism. Okay, well, and Francesca, yes, that is how you name you write my my mom's name. All right, well, you guys should check out the uh, page, uh, the Chicago Brain Buddies on Facebook. You can see the link to uh, to the lovely Jane Mason and other things that you will enjoy. Thank you so much, Peggy. We'll talk to you next week. Excellent. We'll see everybody soon. Bye. Bye. Well, now I'll tell you that was just about as much fun as, uh, <laughs> as I had here doing this. We're not ending it. It's not ending well. But in the meantime.